Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Canyon, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at two guys to the dark tower You can also email us at two guys at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book four of the Dark Tower, Wizard in Glass, the Come Reap section, chapters five through eight. Let's start the show. As Reaping Day approaches, the Cotet comes up with a plan to stop Farson's goal of getting oil from Magus, and they also realize that the globe that Rhea possesses is one of the wizard's rainbow, a collection of magical balls that their fathers told them about. Before they can put their plan into action, the three boys are captured and thrown in jail, where they await execution at the Reaping Day bonfire. Susan has a confrontation with her Aunt Cordelia, and is able, with Shimi's help, to conduct a jailbreak. Exciting stuff, Jay, happening in this section of the Dark Tower. We do our flashback here, and uh, again, as we said with some of the previous sections in this book, this is plot-heavy, driving story, just moving right along, flipping through the pages one by one just to see what happens next, even though there's so much foreshadowing in this section that things are not going to turn out well for at least one of our characters. And obviously it's not Roland because we know (laughs) Roland survives to tell this story, but I'm still on the edge of my seat as I'm reading through. Is it Capricoso the mule? Man. I'm going to feel really sad if Capricoso meets at that end. I thought this was a spoiler-free edition of uh, Two Guys to the Dark Tower came. We'll have to edit that in post. (laughs) Well, as we said, there's lots of characters here, so who knows who it could be, but we do know it is not Roland. Yes, because he is telling the story in the present day. So we'd love to hear what other people are thinking about this section, but like I said, we're loving it. Um, I know this book, I've seen a lot on Twitter and in websites recently that with the failure of something that we won't talk about that happened earlier this year, when it comes to adaptations of Stephen King's works, I have seen a lot of interest in saying, man, somebody could make a whole TV show series just out of the flashback section in in Wizard and Glass and have a very addictive, action-packed, fun adventure. And I think that that would be something that I'd like to see adapted. Yeah, totally. Or wasn't that sort of part of the the story that circulated around the time that the movie that shall not be named was? uh... I believe that that was. So, you know, whether or not that'll happen or not, I could definitely see it being something interesting if they got the right people hired to, to play the parts and it was done pretty well. But as is our want, we're not going to focus on adaptations and and plot. We're going to get into a little bit more of the details of the book and our analysis of it. And one of the things that we've talked about earlier in the podcast, but maybe we haven't touched on so much lately, is King's narrative style. Both you and I have noticed that this book allows King to do some more work than he's done in some of the other books, you know, especially I'm thinking like drawing of the three, there wasn't, we we consider that sort of classic Stephen King plot. And there was some typical, you know, lots of brand names, lots of parenthetical asides and jumping in and out of characters heads. This is a more standard story, but on the other hand, from a literary perspective, it does have a different feel to it. Yes. There's a lot going on here, and and King takes the time and maybe makes an effort to jump out of the 
Roland's voice and just gives us that third person narrator perspective. And you can feel the shift happen when he does it, but it's also a welcome shift for me because King really just like, I could almost hear him like cracking his knuckles before sitting down to play Mozart on the piano. It's like, he's like, all right, I don't need to speak in a character's voice right now. I don't need to confine myself to how much French Eddie knows. I can just be me telling you what's going on. This is when some of his best language is on the page. So I find that this is the really good part of King's narrative style. This section starts off with that exactly. Chapter 6, Closing the Year, Section 1, is told from this third-party narrator. Now, of course, having said that, we know that Roland's telling this story to Eddie and Susanna and Jake back on I-70. But in this section, as we're just reading it, it is not from the perspective of any character. It's just sort of this nice scene setting. What is it like in Magus at the time of the reaping season? He does this very beautiful discussion of what the fields look like, what the orchards are like, what the people start to feel like as well as this important time of the season comes. It ends with this wonderful line about time being a face on the water. And it's just this haunting image of something that is, it's so impermanent that it doesn't even stand still. It's, it's constantly breaking apart and reforming because it is just a, a reflection of a face on the surface of the water. And I think it's some of King's most poetic work. Yeah. We've known for quite a while in King's forwards and afterwards to the previous books that he had at least some sort of general skeleton of an idea of some of what was going to happen in the future books. I don't think he had the whole plot mapped out, but I do think, because even in those early books, he said that he knew that there was going to be a book that was going to be a flashback to Roland's youth. And I wonder if part of the reason that this style is a little bit different and a little bit more literary is because he knew this section in his head from the time that he was fairly young and he knew what he was going to tell this story and how this was going to work. I mean, he's laid down enough hints in the other books, you know, about Suzanne and Elaine and Cuthbert, that he had some idea of what this might look like. And also he might be purposely using a slightly different style to set this part of the book and this part of the story apart, how a a movie might have a different color palette for a different moment in time or something like that. And as we know, all of Roland's stories are Westerns, so... It does have that Western, old-time, mythic in some ways feel. I mean, obviously, this whole story is is mythic in some way, but especially this section, it does have this larger-than-life, good guys, bad guys, vast expanses of land and, and all that that entails. Absolutely. So we've talked about the good of King's narrative style. Let's quickly move over to what might be considered a little bit of a bad piece, and this is in the same chapter 6, section 10, Roland is describing what the festival looks like with a spinning wheel and bottle toss and basket ring. It's your typical county fair type setup. And then he mentions a pony train in which a cart filled with laughing children pulled along a figure eight of narrow gauge rails. And then we get this odd parenthetical. So we talked a little bit about where does this story fit into? How is this being told to Eddie and the rest? And Eddie asks, was the pony named Charlie? 
Mm-hmm. And then Roland says, I think not. We have a rather unpleasant word that sounds like that in the high speech. What word, Jake asked. The one, said the gunslinger, that means death. And so there's this actual parenthetical. We talked a couple episodes ago about how, boy, there's not a lot of Eddie Wise-ass comments. And then here is one. Sure enough, I just had to wait a couple more chapters and, and we get an Eddie Wise-ass directly in the narrative, which is a fairly significant break from the first five chapters of this section and the first whole Susan section for the first part of the book. Yeah, and what the reason why I thought this was bad was because it pulled me out of the story. It pulled me out of the book because the somewhere, some when section that followed the Susan section and then preceded the part where we are now, that was that interlude. I mean, the book even calls it an interlude. It's like, okay, we're going to take a little break, return to the present day and see what's going on with our, our people on the side of I-70 hearing Roland's tale. To me, that served as a strong reminder that this was a story within a story. I kind of needed it. I'd forgotten about the fact that Roland was telling this story to Susanna and Eddie and Jake. And then we went right back to the story and I was okay with that. But to just have Eddie speak up in the middle of this, it made me wonder, like, has Eddie been peppering Roland with questions all along? Because it really seemed like in the interlude that everybody was just mesmerized by the story and was just sitting there quietly absorbing all of the things that Roland was telling them. And I get that. I totally buy that. There is a, a mystical aspect to this story and the circumstances of the storytelling. So it's almost like they have been hypnotized in a way by Roland's tale. Then later on for just Eddie to sort of pipe up like, hey, what about this? Hey, what about that? Come on. You're, you're not making any sense anymore. You know, it's like, wait a second. None of this doesn't line up. It feels awkward, jagged, and startling. And I, it just yanked me totally out of the story. I agree also. As you know, this is something that's concerned me. I'm great, I have great interest in how the stories are told and how these parenthetical asides work and what, what's happening. The more I've given thought to this, the more I think that this is intentional and smart for a reason. It continues the foreshadowing that King is doing throughout all the books, really, and and particularly this section. We talked before about how King is constantly undercutting his his story by saying, oh yeah, these characters are going to survive because they'll be around in a year, and we know what's going to happen here. And I think this is a subtle reminder or not so subtle in this case, if it, drew, if, it, if it drew you out of the story, that we need to be reminded that Charlie, which we knew at the end of book three, when Roland said in his head, he didn't tell anyone out loud right. that he was, he was concerned about Charlie because it reminded him of the word char, which was the word for death in high speech. And this is him coming out and telling his, his current quartet that the word Charlie threw me because again, char for death. And this section ends in chapter eight with Susan being cursed by her aunt with ashes and char yew tree. And I think we're supposed to understand that char yew tree is more death. King connecting all those dots for you. The, the root word char is death. And we should remember that. And I think that Roland is, in fact, like King, laying the groundwork for what's about to happen. Yeah, and I wonder if there is that distinct reason for King to have done this, 
but I kind of feel like he could have done it in a slightly more elegant way mm. without like perhaps he got this far in his manuscript and realized I had Roland make the connection between Charlie and the word char, but he never shared this with his companions. And now I need them to know what that means for the rest of the story to work the way that I want it to. How do I get that in there? Yeah. And so he couldn't go back and republish book three. So this is what he came up with as a solution. And I, I think it could have been better. Sure. It does point out that King's been thinking about this. But again, to your point, it's almost like King also showing off like, hey, it was called Charlie the Choo Choo for a reason. And I'm bringing it up again for a reason. Like all this makes sense. And I've mm -hmm. got the I've got the symbolism down pat. Don't you worry. But we didn't really get to hear the word Charyu tree. We saw I think we saw it once in the first half of the story in, in the Susan section. Mm. And then we see it more and more as we get closer to the end of this until we finally have that confrontation with Cordelia and she curses Susan with the ashes. We've seen it more and more. And also like other characters start using the word char. So if we, if we put those two pieces of narrative as the good and the bad, it only makes sense that we move on to the ugly. And for the ugly, we picked out chapter six, part six, and it's this odd aside, again, not from any major character's point of view of a couple of boys in town who take one of the bangers, the, the fireworks, the fireworks that they have all been setting up prior to Reaping Day and which are going to obviously have some sort of big firework display at the festival. But the boys being boys get anxious and start setting stuff off. They put a firework in a piece of liver and then throw the liver to a dog and then big explosion and the dog's jaw just blows off and it's a really vivid gross ugly scene and it's sort of odd that it's here just sort of placed in between a Rhea chapter and a Cuthbert and Elaine chapter there's mm -hmm. this just short one page long section that really isn't focused on any major character doesn't advance the plot at all and is just sort of adding to the here's what's happening in town now, we haven't gotten a lot of those elsewhere. Just the first section that we talked about, which is really King setting up, hey, here's what the festival week looks like. But where does this piece fit in, in your opinion, Jay? I only see it as a little bit more of feeding into the atmosphere, giving us a little bit more insight into the character of the, the townsfolk, the, the level of cruelty that is underneath the surface. And uh, this is something I, a conversation that I started a little bit on Facebook over the past week, talking about how there is this underlying cruelty and meanness in the townsfolk. They are all just so quick to jump to acts of cruelty and acts of meanness that they all seem super friendly on the surface. And this goes back to like that first chapter of the of the book or the first chapter of the Susan section where. Roland reflects that the surface of the water goes in a different direction than the water below. And it just seems like to a person, everybody in this town, except for Susan, I guess, has the capacity for just being a, a terrible person. And these boys are maybe the worst representation of, of just the natural tendency to that. They're not the worst people in the town. Like Rhea is a 
awful person through and through. And people like Jonas and the other big coffin hunters, they're they're outsiders. They're not even from this town. But when the blacksmith who we've come to to realize probably killed or helped kill Susan's father, you know, and he was his closest friend and everything like that. It's like just for a couple of bucks and how Cordelia has treated Susan from day one for a couple of pennies and a little bit of recognition in town. I'm not saying that this is unique to this town. I mean, this is kind of maybe the human condition in a way. Like we all have the capacity for being shit, but given the right circumstances, but this town seems like it has a deeper connection to that. And it doesn't take much. There isn't much surface to scratch before you get there. And so King is representing that in this chapter through the boys, just to give you that reminder. It also does a nice job of reminding us as the reader that there are firecrackers going off through town, which is yeah. what helps with the cover that Shimi has later on when they break the boys out of the jail. Part of it is that Susan is able to shoot the gun without fear that the whole town will hear it because there's all these firecrackers going on. Yeah. But it's a good thing that in 2017 America, we have moved on beyond cruelty for cruelty's sake and can't be, we're unable to have people rile up a mob and, and have bad things happen. So it's good to read about this in a fictional story and look back on it. Yes. Nobody in May just had tiki torches. <laughs> They're all wearing khakis instead of jeans. To follow up on that point, what you called the underlying cruelty and meanness of the townsfolk. We see that manifested elsewhere. When the boys are captured, no one comes right out and says, hey, we need to take these boys and, and burn them in the reaping bonfire. Jonas is able to know how to manipulate the townspeople in certain ways to yeah. make sure that, hey, I don't have to go too far and I can keep my hands a little bit clean and make it think that, hey, it's the town folks idea. It it helps with his cover, right? It's it's Jonas and his big coffin hunters who have been the one who have perpetrated the evilness. It's the Horsemen's Association that is thrown their lot in with John Farson, the good man. Mm -hmm. So to some extent, they need to have a bigger conspiracy to cover up their conspiracy. He knows how the mob works. And what he can do is he can put somebody out who's part of the town and just make references about, hey, these are outsiders. We don't know much about them. They've come from somewhere else. And here's the horrible things that they've done. And just sort of put these ideas in the mind and, hey, we're going to put them in a jail. And maybe that jail is not going to be heavily guarded tonight or tomorrow yeah. night when at the Reaping Festival. And who knows what will happen. But we'll, we'll just leave that out there and just let the mob sort of, oh, yeah, let's talk amongst ourselves and get riled up. It's, it's very much when Lyle Langley comes to town and needs to get people to, to buy into the, the monorail. In the monorail, exactly. But Main Street's still all cracked and broken. Face it, mom, the mob has spoken. Monorail. Monorail. Mono. Don't. Put East Haverbrook and Magus on the map. <laughs> but it's not just Jonas who's able to manipulate this mob as well and sort of brings out this underlying cruelty. We get a lot more of the pink globe, the grapefruit globe. We get a little uh, more insight into what Rhea has been binge watching on her <laughs> Wizard's Glass uh, edition of Netflix. And it's really clear that everything that Rhea sees is the, the worst part of what the town has to offer, what the, worst, the worst part of what the town has to show anybody. 
And some of that is Rhea, the things that she finds entertaining. But what it really boils down to, it's the grapefruit. The grapefruit is all about the bad parts of people. It gives you this this sight into the world around you, but it only shows you the bad things. And so this, of course, is perfect for Rhea. And she sees everybody doing the worst things. And one of the ones that we spend the most time with her, she seems to be most entertained by, is there's this one woman who makes excuses to empty her family out of the house. Then she licks the corners of her kitchen. While naked on all fours, like a dog, it just... Well, she's not totally naked, but she takes off her outer layer of clothes, I think, just to keep them from getting dirty. Uh, Yeah, she's like just licks the corners and has to stop to spit out the blood from splinters on her tongue and all this stuff. And it's just like we're left to wonder, like, what the heck is this? What makes this woman want to do this? It doesn't seem to give her any pleasure. So is she Rhea even kind of cackles that she's like trying to get forgiveness from some unspoken god or gods i don't know what the heck why anybody would do that but well i think part of it's not only to show what these people are doing and some of it they mentioned are are very petty right it's wives going through husband's pockets looking for extra money sheb the piano player licks the seat of the chair where his favorite whore had sat for a while a maid spits into a pillowcase because she's mad at the person who sleeps there and part of it is these aren't horrible, horrible, terrible things. They do show the town in a bad light, but it really ups the anger in Rhea herself. Rhea is this outsider and she's already been separated from the town and she has a poor opinion of town and they have a poor opinion of her. She's the witch on the coup. She's already separate and almost like a scapegoat to some extent. She's dependent on to get the approval of making women clean right but at the other time i don't think anybody likes her they're all sort of scared for her they tolerate her they tolerate her because she's a necessary evil right there needs to be an outsider of some sort currently Rhea is the outsider of town Mm -hmm. she's their outsider the boys represent the outsider who's not their outsider they're they're different so Rhea is able to look at this and say boy these people are horrible but on the other hand, I can turn them on the people I really hate, which are the boys and the people who do things against me, which in this case might be Susan. And I get a sense from reading this that the globe is encouraging all this. Mm. The magic that is providing her this look into this is giving her what she wants to see. You had said like it's like her version of Netflix. Yeah. She's not picking the channels on Netflix, though. It's almost if if Netflix is feeding her like, hey, look at this horrible thing. Hey, look at this horrible thing. We know you want to see this, even though it's horrible. And it's just going to up you and, and really raise your blood pressure to the roof because it's exactly what you think about the town. And we're going to confirm that for you. We're not going to show you the good things that are happening on a regular basis. And I assume there are good things happening, right? There's Sure. We'll get to it in a minute. Even the person that Susan kills has a family and is somebody that, you know, Susan said was a nice person and she could see her have giving him a kiss on in, a, in another world. But it's not showing Rhea those things. It's really amping up the, the hatred. Yeah, it's like the pink grapefruit of Merlin's rainbow. It's like nothing but clickbait. Yes. It's just one more click like, oh, if 
you thought that was bad, check this out. <laughs> what are the 10 horrible things that your neighbors are doing that you don't know about? Oh, yeah, I want to see that. Yeah. There's also, like, I think part of the underlying cruelty and meanness, it feels like it's somehow connected to how the, the people of Megis are still very much connected to the old ways. There's a what I assume is a Spanish or meant to sound Spanish word, los ceremoniosos. Yeah, los ceremoniosos, the ceremonies, I guess. These are traditions, things that they've always done for time out of mind. And we get this great line from King that sometimes when the world moved on, it came back to where it had been. So the, the world used to be, uh, used to operate in these pagan ceremonies. And then the world progressed. It evolved into the high-tech advanced society that the Great Old Ones eventually built and then abandoned. And then when the world moved on from there, society, at least societies like the one in Magus, reverted back to the old ways, reverted back to keeping up with Los Ceremoniosos. And that's where we get these ideas of Charyu tree and reaping bonfires and things like that. These are things that the, like burning the stuffy guys that represents burning people they're they're keeping the tradition of burning people alive on a ceremonial bonfire because they think it helps them in some way right it's part of their culture and that doesn't seem to be part of say the inner baronies culture gilead doesn't have stuffy guys and charyu tree so there's something about how this meanness, maybe it's kept alive by these old ways. Or to your metaphor that you mentioned earlier, the king uses the waters on top and there's the undercurrent. So really these old ceremonies have turned into a metaphor. What might have been real at one point has become a metaphor, but there's always this concern that perhaps it won't be a metaphor again, that it'll go back to those ways. That's what King is hinting at and what the idea that Jonas and others are putting into the townspeople's heads that like, hey, we've got this bonfire already. Hey, it's reaping day. Why not burn some more like back in the old days? That wouldn't be so terrible now, would it? We have some of these metaphors in our culture today that were based on pagan rituals that have been turned. I mean, this isn't anything deep that I'm saying, but the fact that mm -hmm. we have evergreen trees at Christmas to represent, you know, that we're going to get through the winter and that, that life goes on even in the darkness of the winter. Or the egg at Easter time, which is rebirth. I mean, a lot of these right. are pagan, pagan rituals that have just been turned and transformed into something else. They're obviously not as dark as that, but. So something that kind of happened towards the end of the, these few chapters is Susan's loss of innocence. And it culminates in the, the moment when she breaks the gunslingers out of jail and actually kills two people using Roland's guns. After we thought about it for a minute, we realized that of this quartet, this quartet made up of Roland, Cuthbert, and Elaine, and Susan and Shimi, they are all one from many. Susan is apparently the first one of them to actually kill, as far as we know. I believe that is correct. I mean, we don't get any indication that Roland or the other two boys have killed anyone along the way. Nothing has happened in 
mages yet that showed them killing anyone. They've threatened to kill Rhea and they shot her snake, but they have not killed a human as far as we know or that we're aware of. And Susan is the first one to do it. And not only does she kill somebody, but unlike in many Westerns or action stories, we see the consequences of that immediately. Yeah. This whole idea of Susan's loss of innocence is made clear that she is deeply affected by her killing of Dave Hollis. Not so much of the sheriff, but of Dave Hollis, who's only a few years older than her, who's young, who is really almost just doing his job. That's basically all he's doing is his job. He doesn't have any sort of fight with the gunslingers who are in jail. He's just been deputized by the sheriff and he's doing his job. And when she comes in to break him out, he makes a move because he feels, hey, I'm a deputy and my job is to make sure that these boys stay in jail and that we're safe. And when he does that, that's what gets him killed. And Susan immediately feels that. It kind of makes you wonder, like, what does it mean to be a good man and die for the wrong reasons? Like, we're, after the fact anyway, we're we're led to believe that Dave Hollis is a good person. Like, maybe he's one of the other handful of people in, in Magus that actually is a good person and, you know, wouldn't have, uh, you know, sworn allegiance to the good man or anything like that. It gives the, the moment, you know, so much more tragedy because because he shouldn't have. He should have just said, you know what? I was uncomfortable with this whole situation to begin with. I'm just going to leave. You guys do what you're going to do. It's all over. I'm out. And he could have just walked out the door and into the night, gone back to his wife and, and kids and lived the rest of his life probably without ever saying to anybody that he was complicit in the, the jailbreak. But instead he was like, no, I gotta, I'm a good man. Therefore I have to do my job. I have to live up to the duty that I've been asked to do. And that meant standing against basically Roland's Ka here. He got crushed by that Ka because he was a good man doing what he felt was the right thing. And he died for the wrong reasons. To your point earlier about how we get the weight of this killing by Susan, there's also like the mechanics of gunplay and death. King gives us a lot of detail to make it feel all the more real how so much blood gets on Susan's clothes, how her clothes catch on fire from the gun going off. Yep. Like These are things that could actually happen when you're dealing with firearms, especially when you're shooting them at people at very close quarters like that. And it's not like in the movies where we're just so used to somebody pulling a trigger, hearing a bang and watching a body drop and maybe like a little tiny dot of blood on their, their shirt. That's not how people die from gunshot wounds. It's messy and it's hard and it's not pleasant to look at. What it takes to kill somebody, no matter what you use, is you need to tear apart their body. Yep. And that's what the bullet has to do. And the sheriff's head actually comes completely off his body because she puts the gun barrel to his neck and pulls the trigger. Roland's gun is so, so powerful that it just rips his whole throat out and his head falls off. And Dave Hollis is the same way. The bullet enters him and he sort of staggers and tries to get up to his feet. And then when he finally falls, she sees the exit wound and it's much larger, just sort of literally blown away. King, if you read his short essay, Guns, you know what his thoughts are on guns. Uh, Even though he makes it a part of his story, you can feel like this is not just a trope for him. He wants to show 
the damage that the guns can do and what this means, not only to the human body when a gun gets shot, but then the impact it has on a person, especially a person like Susan, who has been shown to be empathetic and caring. And as we've said, this is her loss of innocence as she does this. And she thinks she's doing it for all the right reasons, which is to rescue the love of her life and his friends from an execution for a frame-up, basically. Yeah. Early on, when the cotet is captured out at the ranch house, Dave's the one who keeps Roland from falling off his horse when they've bound him and, and are taking him in. Roland says, I'm sorry to see you here. It's sorry I am to be here, the deputy said. You know, he even gets the feeling like I, he's still doing his job, but he does feel like there's something more going on here. And Roland realizes that it was just part of the frame and none of these men believe much of it, Dave likely included. I get the sense, and again, we're not spoiling anything, to say that when we get to the end of this chapter and we see the loss of innocence in Susan and, and what she feels about this, it almost seems as if we're coming to the end of her arc. There's a, a, a very much of a buildup of an arc here for Susan. She falls in love with Roland. They have this relationship. She's cursed by her Aunt Cordelia with the ashes that are put on her face. They have that confrontation. And then right immediately, almost after that curse is put on her, she rescues Roland, kills Dave Hollis and the sheriff. And the chapter ends with her saying she had pulled the trigger on poor Ernest Dave Hollis. She had paid for her love with the dearest currency of all, had paid with her soul. If he left her now, he being Roland, her aunt's curse would be fulfilled for only ashes would remain. Mm, yeah. Pretty uh, ominous. If... Pretty ominous. Yes. Do you have um, Cordelia's ashes curse handy? Yes, I do, Jay. Cordelia curses her niece saying, I curse thee with the ashes. I curse thee to darkness, both of thee. Be ye happy together, ye faithless, ye murderers, ye cozeners, ye liars, ye fornicators, ye lost and renounced. And then the curse ends by saying, Thee'll be married tomorrow night if thee goes nigh him, joined in smoke, wedded in fire, bedded in the ashes. Bedded in the ashes, do ye hear me? That final curse joined in smoke wetted in fire bedded in the ashes that has a george r. r martin feel to me like one of his portents or one of the yeah prophecies that might show up in a fantasy novel that very much sounds like one uh with that that three clause structure and this all goes back to the idea of ka the Cotet has talked about this early on in the section that we read when they're coming up with their plan on what they're going to do. And Roland is very sure of himself that Ka will take care of things, that Ka's brought them all together, that, that they have this Cotet now. And we know they're a Cotet because Shimi and Susan can almost read their minds when they're planning it. So we know they've got that, what seems to be an important part of a Cotet is that touch between them. Yeah, the bit of telepathy. And they talk about the importance of Ka. And the one person who's against it is Susan. She's very wary of Ka. We've talked about this a couple of times, but she, she presses up against this. But Roland, I mean, even when he's in the jail cell, you get the sense that 
Cuthbert's making jokes like he normally do, and Elaine's grabbing onto the jail cell and is just can't believe they're in this situation. And Roland is, of course, just laying back on the bunk with his hands behind his head, staring up at the ceiling, wondering, hey, whatever happens, happens. It's Ka, right? And that doesn't keep him from being somebody who takes action when he needs to. You know, as soon as Susan walks in the door, he recognizes it's her and what's going to happen. And he's up on his feet and ready to take action. But he's one who thinks that Ka's going to lead us there. But throughout this section, we also get the sense that some things are, might potentially be inescapable when it comes to Ka. And we get that sense from Susan by the end of this, that she's been cursed. And in some ways, maybe this killing of Dave Hollis has led her somewhere. Same with the idea that the globe, that the, the pink grapefruit, the wizard's rainbow, is showing things that are going to happen or could potentially happen. On the, the topic of what could happen, and we get the very detailed dream or nightmare that Olive Thorin has. And she basically predicts the murder of her husband. Mm. right before it happens and she gets all these details of a bird flying over the town and everywhere its shadow falls death falls and then uh, her husband has no eyes and then there's a skull in his lap and then of course you know a few hours later his murderer comes in cuts out his eyes and drops Cuthbert's rook skull in his lap to frame him and it's so spot on there's this predictive nature these portents that I think we need to take at face value. And likewise, when Stephen DeShane is telling the tale of Marilyn's rainbow, he couches all of his statements within like the story is, or the legend is that, you know, superstition tells us, but I think we need to just say like everything he tells us is 100% accurate. And it's not that he was holding back or he didn't want anybody to, to believe him. I think that the language of storytelling is that the characters in the story might not know that this is 100% true, but the author of the book knows it is, so it is true. These are Marilyn's rainbow. They do have the powers that Stephen DeShane describes, and this is the pink one. These portents are, are real. This is all a fairy tale, and there's this pink globe that may or may not exist, but if it exists, you guys should definitely get it because it's very important. Whatever you do, don't look at it. Don't look at it, but keep it because we're going to need that. We ended on a very low note with Susan feeling like, hey, I've done something bad and I'm cursed and I don't know what's going to happen. That's not going to keep us from keeping the tradition alive. It's fun stuff time. All right. I'm always down for some fun stuff. So we had a great email that came in this week from Roy Dallas who had lots of thoughts on, on the book and the series, and he had some nice words about the work that we're doing, Jay. So Awesome. It, it's good to hear that. He's currently in the process of rereading the books, so that's good. He says that his favorite book, this is something that we've been discussing, his favorite book is actually one to, that we're going to be approaching in the coming months, and that's Wolves of the Kala. Or is it pronounced Kala? That's something that maybe our listeners can weigh in on. How do you pronounce the title and the, the titular wolves? Is it Kala? Kala? Is it Kala Bryn Sturgis? Or Kala Bryn Sturgis? Well, with my Midwestern accent, you're going to get Kala. Kala? Like California? I think I have a very good track record on this podcast of never mispronouncing anything wrong. There are so many double negatives in that statement, I don't know where you end up. <laughs> The point being, Roy had a nice email to, to send to us. He had 
lots of good thoughts on the themes that he's discussing, the the books that he likes. And I was happy to say that we gave him an insight during one of our episodes that made him think about things in a different way, uh, which makes us think, hey, we must be doing something right, Jay. Yeah, nice to know. He also talked a lot about something, an, an hour and a half of something that happened in a movie theater somewhere. I'm not aware of what exactly that was about because I've put that out of my mind. But thank you for your thoughts on that. We appreciate it. Yeah, that was a really great email, Roy. Please keep your thoughts coming. And uh, if you do get a chance, um, write us a review on iTunes as well. Yeah, and everybody else who's who's out there, we'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Um, Jay and I would love this to be a dialogue and not just us monologuing about our thoughts. We'd love to hear what other folks say because I'm sure there's things we're missing and uh, things that you guys can add to the conversation. We're planning a full episode on this book as a wrap-up where we won't have a reading assignment. So that'll be a good place to answer questions and hear some thoughts from you. So be sure to send those in. More fun stuff, Jay. We were just talking about the pink grapefruit and Stephen DeShane's portents about it. But every time I read in the the book that everybody was calling it the grapefruit, the grapefruit, the grapefruit, because it's pink. Like, what the heck are they talking about? Grapefruits are not pink. (laughs) Some of them have pink flesh, but they're not pink. The outside of a grapefruit, there are no pink grapefruit. So then I started wondering, well, what fruit is round and pink? I honestly couldn't come up with anything. So (laughs) listeners, if you have an idea, send it in. But the best thing I could come up with was a crunch berry. (laughs) Maybe those grow on trees and mages. Yeah, the captain's going to come get your uh, wizard rainbow. To be fair, the world has moved on. Who knows what color grapefruits are in Midworld? Fair enough. I mean, no one's calling the red one of the rainbow the orange. Like, oh, it's the blood orange. Get that one. Because oranges aren't red. We get another instance of Roland making a promise in this section, Jay. Roland promises to never leave Susan. In fact, he swears upon it. Yeah, that's our Roland. Always promising never to leave people. I'm sure nothing uh, bad will come of that. Can we add that as a 80s sitcom? Whenever Roland makes a promise to someone, all the other characters will be like, that's our Roland. And then the laugh track kicks in. Roland turns to the camera and like wiggles his eyebrows or something. I think he does more of a shrug with his hands up like, okay, <laughs> that's me making promises. That's our Roland. One of the other things I liked was when uh, Reynolds tells the, the pap, the pappy. Not to ask Jonas any silly questions because he was in a really bad mood. And it made me wonder, Jonas probably doesn't want to play any silly games either. No. Nice little callback to Charlie the Choo Choo, perhaps. Indeed. And we're also entering the fall season here in 2017. And I've seen many scarecrows going up in people's yards as decorations. And we just keep seeing these stuffy guys everywhere throughout Magus and Hambry as people keep creating them. And it's great imagery. I just love the idea of these stuffy guys. And it's at times creepy and at times silly, but it does give that sense of fall and reaping and the end times and just a little bit of spookiness as well. Yeah. What do you think of the stuffy guys, Jay? Well, every time they kept showing up in like more and more places in the story, it, I think the the one that finally like tipped me over the edge was we see one that's like sitting in the sheriff's chair dressed in the sheriff's clothes wearing a sheriff's star and 
I realized uh, it's kind of like life-size elf on the shelf. Like every time you turn around, there's another stuffy guy where there wasn't one before. And now it's in another another spot and another spot. <laughs> stuffy guy on the shelf. Doesn't roll off the tongue as, as easily, but. Perhaps there'll be another Stephen King pseudonymed authored book on stuffy guy on the shelf for the next Halloween season. Nice. That would be good. Yeah. I'd buy that for my nephew. If not, one of us should write it. Sure. We'll have to figure out what rhymes with stuffy guy. That's going to be it for this episode. Thank you. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. And if you do, you might be called out in a future episode. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 4 of the Dark Tower, Wizard and Glass, Come Reap, Chapters 9 and 10. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening.